Hello and welcome to Contemplations and welcome to part two of us talking about Chinese proverbs. I am once again joined by Stelios. Hello. And I am Josh. And of course, this is the book that I'm dealing with if you uh, have skipped to part two and avoided part one for whatever reason. But um, yes, it's just a book of Chinese proverbs. It's a similar um, edition from the same publisher that has done a few of the other books I've covered of Eastern philosophy. Uh, not entirely sure about the quality of the translation relative to others, but it seems to be relatively good and the explanations are helpful. So I think we should just get right into it and avoid waffling on. I'm going to start with this one, which is uh, quite a classic one. Paint dragon, add eyes. So what do you think that is? I'm going to continue with the quizzing form. I have no idea. No? Um, a little detail that makes all the difference, or bring something to life, or a finishing touch. Nice. Those are all sort of synonyms of it. So it says, This Cheng Yu is concerned with a real artist called Zhang Xinyao, uh, who lived in the early 6th century. He was commissioned to paint four dragons on the wall of a monastery. When he had finished, everyone admired the painting, saying how lifelike the uh, dragons looked. They noticed, however, that Zhang had not finished the eyes on any of the dragons. When they asked him why not, he replied that if he put the eyes, the dragons would really come to life. No one believed him, so he applied the final strokes to two of the dragons. There was an almighty peal of thunder, and two dragons flew away, leaving only behind the two with unfinished eyes. Yeah. So that's a, obviously something that we wouldn't be able to get without the cultural background. And you, know, you can be forgiven for not knowing about an artist from 6th century China. But I think it's interesting because there's more poetry in that, that, that you know it, obviously it's a story it's not real dragons are not real um, there's probably going to be someone in the comments just like yes they are but the, the point being that there's a lot more poetry in this proverb than I think there are in the western equivalents which I quite like because one thing that you can say about the east compared to the west is that they have a greater appreciation of the concept of mastery perhaps than we okay. do do you think Absolutely. that's fair to say? Like, when you look at, say, um, uh, a sort of tradesman or um, someone who's even got very, very good at a game, they tend to be from the Orient and they've, they've really worked very hard on mastery of their skill. Like you see, I don't know, like a Japanese craftsman, for example, um, doing something like wood whittling or crafting something with their hands and that they're, they're so good at it that they make it look effortless well i don't know about that but may, maybe you have a point i don't know if it is more specific to our culture nowadays but i think that there is the idea of discipline and consistent effort put into a particular practice mm -hmm. that you could say that we sort of lack and uh, i would put it as it diminishes in the West. A lot of people are seeing dis be discipline as something that is oppression nowadays. Mm -hmm. So we move against it. And there is the focus on, you know, make money fast, which doesn't help with the idea of uh, putting sustained amount of effort in a particular task to master it. That's a fair point. Yeah. That I don't know if, uh, I don't know how illuminating that is. No, I, I think there's something to that, that there's, you know, if, if someone has become very rich, for example, it's more impressive that it 
was in a very short space of time rather than a long and deliberate effort throughout a lifetime. Yeah. Because really the more difficult feat is sustaining a continued effort throughout a long period of time. Working very hard in a short period of time is obviously not as impressive by definition. And so it's, it's interesting that we place the emphasis on that, but I suppose the, the thinking would be that because they've made a lot of money, they've done the equivalent of what someone might have to do in a lifetime in you know space of a few years, well, then that's more impressive. Yeah. Uh, and so that might be why. But even so, I think that the emphasis on discipline is probably a good point. Although that's, I don't think that's what it's trying to say. This is a bit of a tangent, but it's just a quirk, I think. So here's another one. Paint snake, add legs. What do you reckon this one is? No, honestly, they're, they're so poetic in a sense and so abstract that unless we have the context, we, we have no idea. Well, I'm sure it has a context somewhere there. Surely you can deduce somewhat. Snakes don't have legs. Yep. So what would painting legs on a snake be? Well, like, uh, no. Absurd. <laughs> I wish it was just like, yes, the benefits of being absurd. But no. Um, or like over- trying to, let's say, uh, deceive or something. No, it's, it's to over-egg the pudding is the synonym they've got in here. Or to just overdo something, I think is a an easier way of saying. So it says, the story behind this common saying, which describes spoiling something by going too far or trying too hard, first appears in the Zangao Si, uh, a historical record written in the 3rd century BC. Um, supposedly a group of friends were having a painting competition to see who could produce a painting of a snake in the shortest time. Yeah. Well, that should be easy, right? It's just a brushstroke. But that's beside the point. The prize was a jar of wine. One artist was... So- so much quicker than the others, he decided to show off and add something extra. He painted some legs on his snake, but when he tried to claim the wine, his friends disqualified him because his painting was no longer that of a snake. Yeah. So basically that when you overdo things, you're not fulfilling the purpose you set yourself to achieve in the first place. Yes, and I think the, the sort of point of the, the phrase is that you've got to keep the purpose in mind of what you're doing, otherwise you might overdo it. As well as potentially underdo it, although that's not really explicit there in the phrase, but that there's an appropriate amount of effort to dedicate towards a task, and sometimes you can do too good a job, if you will, too good in sort of quotation marks. Yeah, and some people are a sort of um, you could say when they they get so much hang up on the idea of themselves as doing something, mm-hmm. and they forget the task. They want to convince themselves that they are doers and they forget the task. And sometimes, you know, you, you don't need to do so many things in order to achieve something. Mm-hmm. I think a key part of this as well is ego. Yeah. In that, yeah. Um, he added the legs on to show off, at least uh, as it's framed here. And so if you're doing things to serve your self-perception, perhaps you're... you're sort of exerting effort for a, a futile aim. And I think that actually a lot of the time doing things for ego's sake is a good way of making yourself feel somewhat disillusioned with the world. Yeah. I think that actually 
you've got to see the purpose in things because doing it for the fulfillment of other people, well, that's a slippery slope because there are so many people in the world whose, whose expectations do you fulfill? The people you want to like you? Well, you're not always going to please everyone and by pleasing some people, you're going to displease others. And this is the, this is what I sort of, the realization I came to at quite a, a young age, sort of in my teenage years is that don't care about people not necessarily liking you. Just be yourself and people of a like mind will gravitate towards you. So well, not you'll find your place. Happy. Not everyone can be happy. If you try to please everyone, you won't, you won't do it. And also you are going to displease yourself. Well, yes. And I think that you're also um, a slave to other people as well when you yeah. do that. And that's not good because you're, you're basically changing who you are as a person yeah. to yeah. sort of placate people that don't really know you. And also for something that doesn't work because people want radically different things. Mm -hmm. So you cannot, by definition, have everyone happy. Mm. Sometimes making someone very happy means you make another person very unhappy. Mm. Yeah, very much so. This one's quite self-explanatory. An arrogant army will always lose. Yeah. And uh, this goes along quite nicely considering we've covered the art of war recently. Uh, it's obviously the equivalent of pride goes before the fall. Is it about arrogance? <laughs> I think. <laughs> Do you reckon? Yeah, you know, I think so. Yeah. You know, the, the, the translation is, is literally the word arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the commentary here that it says about it is this saying truly spans the centuries and the globe, although it sounds as though it should be and would not be out of place there. It is not a qu quotation from Sun Tzu's famous work, The Art of War. There we go. Um, the earliest version of it appears in uh, the Han Shu, the history of the former Han Dynasty, written at the end of the second century BC. It's a very, um, in a very different context, a Republican congressman writing in the Washington Times in March 2008 quoted it as a warning to the United States not to be complacent over China. There you go. That, I don't know why that contextualization was in there. <laughs> I don't care about Washington Times people and congressmen writing in there. This is, this is ancient Chinese proverbs. You Could know. you repeat it, please? It's about arrogance. An arrogant army will always lose. Yeah. So well, the, the, the connotation here is obvious, isn't it? That if you're arrogant, you don't see reality properly and therefore it will be at your disadvantage. Exactly, yeah. And also in the context of an army, that means really bad organization, bad leadership, wrong decisions, which could potentially mean life or death. Well, death. Um, Particularly um, in the context when they're talking about the Han Empire, um, a lot of the sort of conflicts around that time, when there was an arrogant army that were very confident, they would often get ambushed. Yes. And so that's a, a lesson all on its own, isn't it? That people will capitalize on your arrogance and, and take advantage of it. So the next one is not grass, carry ring. Apparently, there are two stories behind this. Um, in the first, a man is asked um, by his father to make sure his favorite concubine is looked after when he dies. On his deathbed, however, the, the father grows delirious and orders the concubine to commit suicide. The son remembers the instructions and spares the girl. Later in battle, the son is saved from death when an old man mysteriously appears and ties the grass in front of an attacking enemy's horse into a knot, um, tripping the horse. In a dream, the old man reveals himself as the father of the concubine, repaying his debt. 
oh, what a riveting story. And in the second version of the story, a man saves an injured sparrow, which later returns with a jade ring in its beak, which is far simpler and is perhaps a bit more realistic as well. And I think it has to do with good deeds. Yes. It, it's, that good deeds sort of uh, pay off. It's, it's almost appealing to a, a sort of notion of karma, isn't it? That if you're, if you're good to others, then goodness will come and find you, which in a roundabout way is true. I think it's like 60% true. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time, kind actions are completely ignored and sometimes even not acknowledged. But uh, you should still do it for its own sake because being a good person means doing good things for their own sake rather than for your own benefit. That's my notion anyway. I've actually put a lot of thought to that um, because obviously there's a limitation on what makes you a good person in that if you say give away all your money, sure, that's a very kind act in the short term, but you've also disadvantaged yourself and you're a person, you're worthy of um, being looked after yeah. and now you've got no money to live. Yeah. So there's, there's got to be some cutoff where you've got self-preservation yes. because you're still a person worthy of consideration. And caring for yourself, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know, is, is doing something without any reward I, I can obviously see the morality of it and I embody it, but does that cross the line? What do you reckon? Well, I, d I don't know. But I mean, you could say that we can do things for, uh, that doing some things without, without expecting reward is the right thing. Yeah, well, and, it's uh, like returning yeah. a shopping cart, isn't it? Yes. No one pays you, no one yeah. um, tells you off necessarily for not putting it back, but you do it anyway because you yeah. know it's the right thing to do. Yes. And uh, I think that basically we, we never regret these acts. No, I, I, I always say this to people that I, I can't think of a single situation where I regret being too kind or too forgiving or too yes. understanding. Or when people mess the change, mm -hmm. and make a mistake and give you more money. Yeah, Sometimes, well, yeah. Well, I always say, oh, sorry, you've given me too much. You've yes. got to be honest, haven't you? Yeah. Otherwise, you're letting a mistake steal your glory <laughs> <laughs> bit of pocket change yeah yeah so this one might be a bit more obvious yeah frog at the bottom of a well what do you think this one might mean well particularly relating to the frog's perception of the world that from the frog's perspective everything looks high what um I didn't expect you to take that angle, but the sort of um, vibe it's going for is it's used to describe someone who's narrow-minded and not open to new ideas. So okay. at the bottom of the well, the frog is, it thinks the whole world is in that well. It can't picture yeah. um, the rest of the world outside of the well. Mm. And because it has what it needs down there, it's got some water, it probably gets food every now and then. I don't know whether a frog can survive at the bottom of a well, to be honest, but it's a good analogy, I think. It's a good way of personifying it. It's like uh, much better than Plato's cave. He's just talking about shadows and impressions. I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> get out of here. I mean, I like Plato's cave, but let's keep that for another, for another <laughs> discussion. I'm just saying it's a clearer analogy, that's all. I mean, okay, it sort of reminds me of the idea that some people think that their own limits are the limits of the world in a mm -hmm. sense that uh, everything that 
it's sort of the fact that the world stops for them to make a decision. It doesn't go, it doesn't keep moving, and there isn't anything other than what they see. It's solipsistic, essentially. Yeah, well, I think that that's kind of how children think in a way, and, and some adults don't grow out of it. Yes. I think most people are generally aware that the world doesn't stop for them. So it says here that this Cheng Yu refers to a parable from the works of the 4th century BC Taoist philosopher Zhang Guozi. Um, probably butchering that name, to be honest. Um, I'm trying. In this tale, a frog is sitting happily in a small pond at the bottom of a well. A sea turtle is passing. I don't know how you get a sea turtle in a well, by the way. Um, and look down on it. Um, the frog calls up to the turtle to come and join him as he is completely happy in the best of all possible homes. The turtle suggests that the frog come up and join him in returning to the ocean, which is far bigger and finer than the frog's pond. The frog cannot understand how this is possible and stays where he is. Now, my first gripe about this is, in what scenario is there a well next to where there are sea turtles, all right? I mean, <laughs> I'm all for talking animals, but at least uh, have a realistic interaction here. I, I mean, what, what's, what's a sea turtle doing looking in a well? I mean, they, they've really not thought this through. Obviously, it's, it's probably something meant for children, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it, it's also meant to be a sort of parable or analogy in the same way that Aesop's fables um, were meant to teach young people, you know, children. I think it, it is meant to show the, the difference in environment because you have mm -hmm. uh, turtles who live in, let's say, ponds and stuff like that and small forests and also sea turtles. So maybe they want to draw the difference between the well and the sea. Well, I don't understand is that frogs don't really live in the sea, as far as I'm aware, and probably... There's one species of frog, and someone's going to point out in the comments. But Josh, what about this one? But most of them don't. And, and so... But there is a sea. Yes. And I think that's from, judging from that proverb, the, the frog doesn't think that this is the case. Yeah, the, the sea doesn't exist. I know I'm being very pedantic about it, but the, the point of the analogy is, is good, that when you limit your um, worldview, you can't conceive of what you're missing out on. Yes. In a, in a sentence, I think. So this one is very esoteric. Nine oxen, one hair. Of no importance or insignificant yeah. is the, the meaning. So it says, many Cheng Yu come from or are found in the works of Sima Qian um, from 146 to 86 BC, regarded as um, Chinese histiogra historiography. Historiography. That's the one. Yeah. I don't know why I'm messing that word up. I've said it lots of times. But this one is actually about him. Uh, Sima Qian um, was good friends with the Han general Li Ling. And when Li was accused of treason, Sima defended him. For this, Sima found himself in the disfavor of the emperor Wu Di. Um, he was condemned to death, but begged for clemency so that he could finish his great historical work, even though, in his own words, it was no more significant than the loss of one hair from nine oxen. Seema's life was spared, but his punishment was castration. Blimey. Mm. I mean, yeah. falling out of favor and getting your, your nuts chopped off, that's tough work. I mean, if, I mean, to be fair, if our politicians, when they fell out of favor, had a similar treatment, maybe they would be a bit better. Maybe they're onto something. But no, um, that's fairly self-explanatory, isn't it? That 
it's an analogy to something not being important, that an oxen doesn't need one hair. I'm kind of stating the obvious here. So I'm going to move on to the next one. Open heaven, break the earth. So here we are. We've got one of the many Chinese references to heaven and earth. That have to do with weather conditions and earthquakes and stuff. At least in Sun Tzu. But that, okay. the reason that that's interesting is because it subverts. When people um, in, in China use, you know, in heaven and earth, they mean the entirety of existence, don't they? Oh, okay, okay. So the actual translation of this is advance by leaps and bounds or take giant strides. Um, open heaven, break the earth. As in... You know, you're, you're pushing against the very natural order of the world. So it's sort of a hyperbolic exaggeration of how much effort someone's put in. So apparently in the traditional Chinese creation myth, at first earth and heaven were bound together like a huge egg. Um, bet you didn't know that. The egg lived, um, in this egg, sorry, if I can read, lived a giant called Pangu. 18,000 years after the beginning of creation, Pangu started to separate heaven from earth as though separating the white from the yoke. The task took him another 18,000 years, and after he had finished, he died of exhaustion. This Cheng Yu is now used to describe something achieved with huge effort or great progress being made in an important endeavor. So it's not necessarily one that um, you're going to get much wisdom out, but it's interesting that there's sort of similar cultural analogies there. To exert great effort, though, we don't really have a turn of phrase for that, do we? Not in, I mean, at least not in English. Yeah, you over-prepare, you overdo it. No. Well, to exert great effort means it's proportional. It's not yeah. necessarily over-exerting. Could it mean something that has to do with primordial forces and tasks? Because, you know, you're, you have a sort of giant task ahead of you. Uh, like Pangu is going to separate the content of the egg. <laughs> the great egg of beginning um in the beginning there was the I, I don't think it's meant to have that connotation because okay. it wouldn't really catch on as a proverb because once you've had one primordial creator you don't really need a second so yeah i think you would it'd be a phrase to be used once and then done with so next one is carve boat to look for sword this one could be a little bit intuitive you can kind of guess at that be behind the times, not keep up with changes. Okay, maybe maybe it's not as intuitive as I thought. But this story, according to the book, um, appears in Spring and Autumn Annals, one of the five classics of the Chinese literature tradition um, believed to have been written by Confucius. It is a saying particularly relevant to modern times where knowledge and technology are advancing so quickly. It illustrates the dangers of falling behind the times. A man is crossing a river in a boat when he drops his sword overboard. Instead of stopping and diving to find it immediately, he marks the side of the boat where the sword fell and then tries to find it when he reaches the other side. I don't understand how marking the boat, because surely the, if you mark where it fell off of the boat, then if you row back, not only is the mark going to be at the other side, but the boat has moved. Yeah, what an idiot. Um, <laughs> That's a very strange way to sort of refer to it because he had a boat already. Why did he carve another one? Oh, the guy's an idiot. That's, that, that's what the proverb should be. Carve boat, you're an idiot. That's my, my revision to the proverb. 
yeah, it's kind of strange, but I suppose the sentiment is still good that you've got to um, bear in mind that things change and you've got to adapt to that. I don't understand where the change is present here because I, th I think there's never been a bad time to use a boat to get something that you've lost in the water. So I, I don't get it a bit because I don't get if it, if it says that you should be ahead of the times, con um, going with the times or fall behind. Well, the right thing to do is to dive in yourself rather than carve the boat, isn't it? Because you're already in a boat. Yeah. So it's, it's a touch confusing. Maybe it's, it's just talking about doing something that's... Um, you see, there's necessary. a question I have about um, these proverbs because are they supposed to be moral teachings, all of them, or are they supposed to be, some of them supposed to be moral teachings, whereas some other ones are going to be descriptions of particular cases, in which case, for instance, you could talk about people mm -hmm. and you say this saying describes them really well without necessarily yeah. condoning their behavior. I think proverbs can, um, th these proverbs can be either sort of moral teachings or they can be a turn of phrase to describe something that doesn't necessarily have to be moral or immoral. Yeah. And I think that that's what we've seen so far anyway. So the next ones, um, I, I get it because I know the person, but it's going to be even more um, okay. <laughs> inaccessible to you. Kongrong allows a pair. And okay, I get it. Kongrong did not allow any pairs, and this <laughs> is the exception. So apparently it's a phrase used to praise a virtuous child, perhaps wise beyond his or her years. Okay. So saying comes from a folktale about a young boy called Kongrong who had five elder brothers and one younger. One day the family was given a gift of a bowl of pears. When told that he could have first choice, Kongrong chose the smallest one. His father asked him why he didn't take a larger one, and he replied that he should leave those for his elder brothers, as they were senior to him. But you have a younger brother, said the father. Don't you deserve a bigger one than him? No, replied Kongrong. I am his elder brother, and I should look after him. That's nice, isn't Which it? Which means that he allowed his other older brothers to not look after him. Well, the point is, <laughs> the point is that you should feel a duty to your family to look after them, and you should be selfless in um, what benefits them, even if you know his elder brothers didn't give him the pair. It's up to you. You're responsible for your actions about whether you show kindness. And I think that the, the sort of environment of having multiple siblings, you don't have to be doomed to repeat the actions of your elders. I'm the elder sibling in, in my household, so I didn't have this. But, you know, believe it or not, I've spoke to people who have elder siblings and they've, they've talked about how the traits of their older siblings may have either been replicated or not um, in them towards their younger siblings. But if uh, Kong Ron had mo uh, more um, elder brothers, Mm -hmm. and just one younger brother. By doing that, wasn't he habituating the older brothers into not caring about the younger ones? Potentially, but also I, I get the impression that in the scenario, he was the one given the pairs, and he okay. was the one who took one first before the other brothers got involved. Yeah. So I would imagine... It's a imagine... method of distribution. You know, you... 
don't don't talk about food distribution in China. You're gonna you're gonna start another revolution. He is Elias. talking about a pear. Yeah, of course. And how he distributes the pear. So <laughs> I'm adding to the conversation that then started. We need we need to redistribute the means of pear distribution. <laughs> so this one's a bit ridiculous. Dried well, fish. Now you you marketed well. So now. Now, I, I, you have my attention. Dried fish store. That's it. There are four yeah. characters to express three words in English, which is, is normally the other way around. But um, it's, uh, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. That's uh, <laughs> the English equivalent, which I much prefer. <laughs> it's a much funnier turn of phrase, anyway. Um, a man went to borrow some money from a friend. But the friend told him he could not lend any until the end of the month. The man was upset and told his friend that on the way over, he had seen a carp um, writhing in a deep, dried-up pond. The carp begged him to bring water immediately, but the man said he would bring some back after he had seen his friend. The carp replied that in that case, the man had better look for him in the dried fish shop because it would be too late. Now, said the man to his friend, you're doing the same thing to me. Yeah. Well... In this setup, by the way, this is me taking umbrage with a proverb too literally. He neglected the fish's suffering, so why should his friend um, acknowledge his? You know, you know, the person with resources, he's, he's there to, to borrow money or whatever, um, and he's not able to look after himself, but his friend is. Is he not like the man to the carp? There's a... Uh, a sort of uh, additional layer here that perhaps isn't touched on that well the man's actions have almost defined how he should be treated because he acted in that way on the way there although it does sound like the fish was probably a made up story from the man i'm i'm really being too um um pedantic here but no the interesting turn of phrase to communicate the notion of um trying to to basically get something out of nothing yeah dried fish store That's, i don't see it catching on in english i think we what we are saying which is a somehow equivalent is that w when it comes especially to fishermen is that when they throw hooks without bait bait hoping that the fish are going to bite the hook I suppose that's a good phrase, isn't it? It's almost... Uh, they cast empty nets mm. in the hope that the... Looking for something for nothing, yeah. yeah. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching, and goodbye.